morning, good afternoon, and welcome to episode eight of the Dollar Dog Sunday Sports Podcast. Presented by Tailgater Sports Media Company, no bullshit takes with a bite. I'm your host, Brian Pulaski. Along with me are my co-host, Cousin Joey, the Mutt Dog, Daniel Mutter, Mr. Young Buckets Esquire, Kevin Pulaski, and you go, Glenn Coco Barnett. As SpongeBob would say, boys, the gang's all here. Episode eight of the podcast. God. It feels like every week we get to do this, I'm just excited because there's always something going on, it seems like, during this pandemic. We got a no-hitter, Bears football, and hell, we've got to talk uh, the other side of town, too, for baseball. Um, But another day to talk Chicago baseball. Boys, we got two teams in first place. Yeah, it's great. Baseball's going really well for both Chicago teams. And uh, I know the first seven episodes was uh, baseball heavy because that's basically all that was going on. And now we finally got football back in our lives, which is a huge thing. We get to talk Bears, Sox, and Cubs all at the same time. So a lot of shit to talk about this week. And if the Bulls would have even been competitive enough to to make (laughs) it into the bubble, we would have had a shit ton of stuff to talk about. I mean, the Hawks uh, obviously going down in the the second round of the playoffs wasn't – the greatest uh, thing, but you know, we now have a majority of Chicago teams playing at the same time. And I always find this time of year to be the best time of year uh, just to be able to be a viewer, to be able to take in as much uh, sport as we are at this time. Um, but specifically on the Cubs and Sox, I mean, both these teams are in first place and the odds are looking pretty fucking good on a crosstown world series. The amount of pitching performances we're getting from both sides of town, as well as the, uh, timely hitting and uh, guys just stepping up to the plate that maybe haven't had a, you know, a, a, a great career or a guy that uh, doesn't consistently hit, you know, 300 is now finding his way to the, the top of the lineup because he's able to get the job done. Uh, this year has obviously been a weird one, 60 game season. It's a strange thing to say that both these teams are both in first place with the, uh, lack of experience on the south side and uh the lack of a, a really uh talented bullpen as well as a uh even a starting lineup that the cubs seem to have uh played through um i guess we can start with the white Sox here uh before we get into the exciting thing from today which was that no hitter but the white Sox are are in first place in a three-headed monster race uh to the playoffs in We've got two possible MVPs on the south side of town in, in Tim Anderson and Jose Abreu. Uh, Abreu uh, tied his career hit streak this last week and obviously lost it to a uh, tough battle against Casey Mize, who was obviously a 1-1 pick, uh, a guy that we've all expected to kind of make his major league debut and stick up here and be a, a really good pitcher for a long time. Um, but Abreu, up until that point, seemed like he was unstoppable, inhuman, if you will. Um, his, his war right now is at a 2.4, which is one of the highest, it's, uh, you know, one of the highest years for him. Um, he's, he's has 15 home runs and a 319 batting average. He's killing the competition at this point. And this is a guy that's having multi-home run games uh, more than, uh, he, you know, he strike out, strikes out three times in a game. Uh, he's having prolific power in the middle of the lineup, and he's just – doing the things that we all have expected him to do since 2014. And it seems like he's now become the consistent um, stonewall presence in our lineup that proceeds to continue to 
perform. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that, like, I know for personally, when we first started this podcast, I was a big uh, Noah Bray, guy. But uh, after the other night where he was the first White Sox player in history to record four-plus hits, two home runs, seven RBIs, and five runs in one game, I think that if you guys aren't watching Jose Abreu right now, you're doing something wrong. I think that he's great. I think the defense itself, too, has been really stellar lately. I think we're, we're really showing up to play, and we don't have to worry about the pitching right now. It's like Giolito. I know that we are missing uh, Keiko, right? He was on the – injured list for a little bit but he'll come back and we'll be solid again yes absolutely and, and you know you, you touch on Abreu's defense Dan uh Jose it definitely looks like he shed some poundage uh in the offseason he looks like he's moving a lot better um whether it's going to a ball over his shoulder in foul territory or even just turning that uh double play ball from first base I mean he he looks like he's moving better he looks like he's a, a more confident uh player than even last year uh, where he led the league in RBIs. He looks more confident at the plate as, as, a, as a hitter, as well as a guy that, that's able to give us, you know, runs. He's saving runs on defense. I mean, that's something that we maybe didn't give him enough credit for was his, his defensive play over at first base. Uh, and, and you look across the diamond and you have another MVP candidate in Tim Anderson, uh, who's a flat-out fucking hitting machine. Uh, he's batting a league's best at three fifty eight seven home runs, 16 RBIs, and he's almost at a 2.0 war. Uh, and, and if for you viewers or your listeners who aren't familiar uh, with war, um, wins above replacement basically just uh, kind of ranks you on how well, of, you know, how well of a job you've done and how good of a player you are compared to your competitor, competitors. So to have two guys that are above 2.0 uh, in the war ca- category in the, in, you know, in the infield, I mean, that's something that I, I can't remember the last time we've done that. Um, and our pitchers continue to deal, and Colomay has been absolutely fucking dynamite. I mean, Joey, you've been watching this week. Um, this team has kind of uh, separated itself from the pack, if you will, and it seems like we're going to have to play a few tough games at the end of the season here, whether it's the Cubs series or the Twins series. It, it just seems like this is going to be uh, a really close, tight match at the end, but Looks like we're trending in the right direction to find a playoff berth this year. Yeah, the Sox look really good this year. Um, and you hit on the head with Abreu. He's definitely trimmed down. I mean, look good, feel good, in my opinion. Uh, he's, you know, he had two home runs and seven RBIs, as Dan said yesterday. And that was after he ended his streak. So he ends his streak, goes 0 for 4. The next game, he comes out with seven RBIs and two home runs. I mean, you can't keep this guy down for long. And that's been the story with him and Anderson. And I just want to point out the Sox actually just won 5-2 to two against the Tigers today. And Colome got his 11th save. He's got a 102 ERA. I think I said in the first episode that Colome is probably the most underrated closer in the league. And uh, now Tim Anderson is batting a 362. And he's on pace to win the batting title for the second year in a row. So, I mean, the Sox are looking pretty good. Uh, Stever got his first start today, went three innings and two-thirds, gave up one run. He looked pretty good today. Um, I'd like to see him in the bullpen when Keuchel comes back. Um, but, yeah, we have tough games. I, I want to see this against the Twins and Indians. We're playing good against the Royals, Tigers, and Pirates, but we need to do this against the teams, in my opinion, that matter. They're, they're giving us a lot of tough games. They're right with us in the division. 
Indians and Twins are the two teams you have to beat. And, you know, play good all you want. You can't beat those guys. You're not going to go that far. You have to beat the teams you have to beat. And I think with this talent, we could easily do that. And Eloy Jimenez is hitting it the other way again, which is great. Opposite field power for Eloy Jimenez. Once he starts doing that, I mean, that guy, there's no stopping him either. You know, it's it's quite ironic uh, the way the White Sox have, uh, you know, in recent years played down to the competition and played, you know, up played against teams that were better than them over the last three years. I would like to know the splits on that, but I'm sure – uh, that would take a little more digging. But, you know, I can remember a series against the, the Yankees in which the White Sox are putting up 9 to 15 runs uh, against, you know, Luis Severino, uh, Tanaka, uh, as well as the bullpen that they have over there. And then we come back and we would play a Royals team and drop two games in a three-game series. Now, this year it seems like you are taking care of business when you're playing these lower uh, competitive teams or teams that aren't maybe competing at the same level that the White Sox are. And it seems like we can't get over the hump when it comes to a team like uh, Cleveland, who, who has the Cy Young award winner in the American league. Uh, they are going to have a guy that's going to compete for the MVP award in, in Fran Mill Reyes and, and uh, as well as Francisco Lindor and, and J Ram the, you know, these teams that we keep beating, as you said, Joe, are, are teams that are, are sitting at the bottom of the division. But what I can at least hang my hat on is – but you got to look at the other side of town and, and see what the Cubs are doing to, to really appreciate what the city of Chicago is actually producing for us during this strange time. We talk about these two teams in first place. you got a guy in Alec Mills that throws a no-hitter today against a, a pretty good Milwaukee Brewers offense, which I don't think they get enough credit for the kind of uh, power they have in that lineup every day. But, the, you know, you got Alec Mills and Lucas Giolito, two guys out of the city of Chicago throwing the only no-hitters in baseball this year. Glennie, how pumped are you to see Alec Mills get his due and throw a no-no against a team like Milwaukee? Oh, I made you guys wait a little bit. I could not, not watch that. It was uh, it's a heroic, or a historic day in, uh, uh, for um, Cubs fans everywhere. I mean, a guy like Alec Mills, you know, just kind of kind of looked past most of his career got signed last year by the Cubs, comes out today out of nowhere, throws a no-hitter against what you uh, described, Brian, as a very underrated offense. And, you know, I mean, they have a very – or uh, underrated power, I should say, and they really do have a great offense. And the fact that he came uh, out to play today, uh, three walks, five strikeouts, uh, just getting ground balls, getting fly balls, getting outs. Uh, that was the uh, main thing that he did. Uh, so sadly, I only got to watch uh, the last few innings, and I was flipping back and forth uh, between that and the Bears game, which, Jesus, let's that we'll save that for later. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, uh, I'm very proud of the, the Cubs uh, team today. I mean, they're uh, absolutely coming out. I mean, they've – I mean, they're playing 500 ball right now. Uh, you have uh, – I definitely – was uh, dogging on uh, the bullpen uh, very early in the podcast. And I've, ever since then, they have been one of the best in baseball. And yes. uh, all due to Jeremy Jeffress and, I mean, uh, Craig Kimbrell. Craig, uh, Craig Kimbrell, since uh, August 14th, has let up two hits, has 21 strikeouts in nine innings pitched, and is, has a one nine three ERA compared to his 23 ERA through the first – uh, four game, uh, four, uh, first four appearances, and he has just been absolutely dominant uh, as of late. Jeremy Jeffress, seven saves this year. 
uh, three wins on it, uh, has a .98 ERA. I mean, you guys are talking about Colome on the south side as a very underrated closer. Jeremy Jeffress, under the radar, a guy the Brewers didn't even want, just straight cut last year. You know, Cubs give him a second chance, and he's taken every opportunity to thrive off that, and he has put up the numbers this year to prove his worth uh, in the MLB. Uh, I mean, other I mean, other pitchers, uh, uh, Rowan Wick, Ryan Tapera, always holding it down. Uh, I'd like to see Kimbrell as a uh, seventh, eighth inning kind of guy. You know, he's getting outs, strikeouts, uh, always a big, you know, thing with Kimbrell. His control hasn't always been uh, the best this year, but he has been getting it done. Uh, it's great to see the bullpen uh, coming through. Our starting pitching is amazing. I mean, uh, you Darvish looking Cy Young-like. Uh, one mistake uh, in the first inning um, of his start the other day, uh, Moustakis, I mean, just took him deep for a three-run uh, bomb, which was his only mistake after striking out nine uh, through six innings and losing three nothing. But he's looked great. John Lester finally coming to form. He says himself he feels great. He's feeling like himself again. He's, you know, he's an uh, old-school kind of guy. You know, he keeps listening to the computer, and he's just like, hey, you know what? I'm going to go out there. I'm going to throw the ball the way I feel comfortable. And that's what uh, he's been doing the last couple starts, and he's been looking great. Uh, no uh, none, no earned uh, five strikeouts over uh, six innings the other night and just – Looking uh, fantastic. I just want to uh, talk a little bit about Jason Hayward real quick. Jason Hayward, heating that up. That man. Oh, my God. He uh, looking fantastic. We were talking Ian Happ at the beginning of the year. I mean, the Cubs offense hasn't really done too much this year. They've no. been very quiet. They've had a couple of shining stars in Hap. And, I mean, Hayward, through the last 30 games, hitting over 300, hitting 320 the last 15, just uh, coming out big uh, spots. Last night, uh, taking Hater out of anybody else. Josh Hader, one of the best closers in the this game. Was, this was the Jason Hayward that the Cubs signed up when he had that unreal year in Atlanta. Or not, excuse me, not Atlanta, in St. Louis. He had that unbelievable year, correct? In St. Louis, yes. He St. came Louis. from Atlanta, a uh, great rookie season. Right. And so he goes off and has that other unreal year, an all-star year. And then the Cubs say to themselves that this is, this is a great piece to put out in the outfield, not only as a defensive weapon, but as a guy that can get it done in the box. First couple of years in a Cubs uniform doesn't hit, doesn't, doesn't get to that you know, expectation of what he can be, doesn't really reach to that same potential that we thought he was going to be when traveling to the north side. Now it seems like he's aging like fine wine. You look at this guy in his age – I would have to guess 34 season, 33 season. Are we at that age yet? I don't think he's Dan would have to check that for me. Fact check. Give me a second. So, you know, Jason Hayward, though, a guy that's a a long-term veteran, a guy that's been around for almost 10 to 10, 11 years now. um, This guy's got the ability to transcend this team and keep that veteran uh, experienced um, play in the, in this team. Uh, but you know, you were talking about Craig Kimbrell. We got, we got to touch again on that though. Like you said, nine out of his last 10 appearances, 21 Ks. I mean, that's, you know, scoreless relief, 21 Ks. Now what scares me is he's still adding those seven walks in 10 appearances, but with those seven walks, he's gotten all of those guys back into the dugout without a run being scored. So he's being able, you know, not only is he able to kind of, 
paint uh, per se. You know, you see him striking guys out in that uh, signature two-seam fastball again. But you're also seeing this guy be able to mentally check in and check out into a situation and be able to uh, focus on the task at hand, which is going after a hitter. It seemed like when he was putting guys on base earlier in the season and even last year, he almost kind of took himself out of his own situation, which may be the new role is, is part of the reason to, you know, making this happen. But I also think that sometimes you just go through a, a mental rut or a physical rut and you're able to kind of dig yourself back out of there. And I think that we're now going to see the Craig Kimbrell that we were almost ready to, to put in Cooperstown a couple of years ago. Um, as far as Jeremy Jeffries goes, though, that almost completely goes on uh, with saying that David Ross in this clubhouse have been not only super uh, inviting and, and able to take in a guy like Jeremy Jeffries and make them one of their own. Um, that's, that's the, the reason you see that turnaround from Jeffries. I, I'm, I strongly believe it. I know he's had very good years out in Milwaukee, but I think if this guy comes into a clubhouse in which he's unfamiliar and isn't really accepted like one of the guys and has to work his way into this position, I don't know if he gets the same kind of opportunity or has the same kind of outcome that he's had thus far being one of the most dominant relievers in the NL. Um, as far as that goes, though, both these teams are in first place, and we're going to see playoff baseball in October, and I'm hoping to see these two teams come in together for the, for the you know, the, cross, the Crosstown Classic, the World Series, Fall Classic. Man, would that – could you imagine? I don't think the city would be able to oh, operate. No, absolutely not. I mean, it would – be, turn out we'd have another fire of Chicago in Chicago. I mean, turn, <laughs> city would turn upside down. I mean, buildings are gonna fall. I mean, it, it would be absolutely insane. It would be so much fun. I would have. I'd love to see it. Uh, will it happen? You, <laughs> who who knows, man? If if the Sox stay as hot as they do right now, and the Cubs pitching keeps prevailing, and they could start hitting the ball, you know, more uh, consistently. I mean, consistently, we yeah. might see a we might see a Crosstown World Series, which would be fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, it would. It absolutely would. And, you know, it, it just doesn't – you know, the team that we as a group basically picked uh, unanimously to, to move on into the uh, fall classic from the American League was, was the um, New York Yankees. And they are not performing at the same level. Um, you know, it, it, it just you, – you wonder – you wonder if this is really a possibility, and it seems like with every game that we see from both of these teams, another win, uh, another uh, comeback performance, it seems like this is all possible. But uh, we got to move on from baseball because we had a big football game today. Uh, Bears-Lions, Mitch City, Mitch season, Mitch's comeback year. Mitchell, Mitchell. These guys are giving me a heart attack, man. Oh, Luckily, you got a – a, a rookie that drops wide open touchdown to win the game. Either. That's the I only think, reason why Mitch is getting praise right now. Don't get I me wrong. He made a couple sad. big time passes. He did. But I mean that they, that they got out lucky. I mean, there's no way they should have won that game. They so totally got away with Mitch, him. Mitchell, oh, Mitch, Mitchell Trubisky continues to keep the lions on his leash. Uh, it is four. No, now. Uh, Poor Lions can't close out a game. The Lions, yeah, they can't play so in the fourth quarter. The Bears won twenty-seven to three, or twenty-seven to twenty-three. Excuse me. Mitch obviously had a solid game. Not that we should be super excited. 
except for me because I will continue to be uh, on the mix. <clears throat> but uh, Anthony Miller and, and, and uh, A-Rob had unbelievable games today. Uh, it's hard to not touch on that. Uh, but the thing that uh, I, my biggest takeaway was, was it was kind of a negative, but I, I thought our run defense looked down. And um, I don't know if it was a personnel problem, uh, not having Robert Quinn or Eddie Goldman, um, but we kind of looked run down. We looked tired. And, and that could have been from a lack of the preseason games. Uh, I'm not really sure what caused that, but uh, how about Adrian fucking Peterson? What a game he had, too. Running out of his fucking shoes. Old fuck. Guy wow, that's amazing. at the end of, his, end of his days, we thought. I think that's almost insulting to the Bears' defense, right? I mean, you got to understand, like, we are missing Quinn and Goldman. And Goldman is huge to the run game. You know, closing that, those A-gaps and, you know, just shutting everything down for Khalil Mack and Akeem Hicks on the outside. Um yeah, I don't know. That's insulting. I mean, how old is Adrian Peterson and you allow him to go for 100 yards a day? I mean, a just all, all around, blood. the Bears just looked sloppy, and I don't know how they squeaked away with a win, but they did. I mean, the offensive side of the ball, Mitch really didn't have a bad game. I don't care no. what anybody says. Mitch didn't have a bad game at all. Uh, Allen Robinson had the catch of the day. You all saw that fingertip catch. He dove about like eight feet. Oh, that was Anthony Miller uh, had a couple of really nice catches too. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that touchdown at the end. Yep. Yeah, playing on the really sideline, nice. the one-handed on the sideline. But just yeah. the problem that I have with the Bears is the coasting. It's all they do. I mean, it was they had six points I think going into what like halfway through the third quarter maybe. Yeah, it was towards the end of the, the third quarter that they scored a touchdown. I mean, Jesus Christ, we're running halfback dive. We just need to start taking shots more. Well, and, and early in the game, we did take some shots. Uh, Jimmy Graham had a big drop. Uh, that that probably would have opened up the game. Uh, two big drops, I should say. Um, and then, you know, Mitch throws a pretty good ball to, to you know, Rob, Robinson in the yeah. corner of the end zone, and, and that's not caught. There were a lot of opportunities. This game wasn't the Bears. It should not have been a Bears victory, but they held on, held on long enough, and you have obviously have the, the big uh, rookie drop at the end of the game that – kind of gives you the opportunity to run away with this but um joe let's I mean, get, get us in get in this yeah i was gonna wait till you guys are done because i gotta nah, say in this. here so buckle up here. Fuckers. Uh-oh. all right you guys said mitch had a solid game he did not have a solid game <laughs> he had a solid quarter he had a good fourth quarter the other three quarters we didn't score a touchdown until the end of the third like dan said he was overthrown. He was thrown behind people. Yes, receivers dropped it. Like Graham dropped a couple. Robinson dropped a key one. I'll agree with Mitch's that. Mitch's last two drives looked very good. I like that. And this is what my suggestion would be to Matt Nagy. Run a hurry-up offense with Mitch Trubisky. He does better in a hurry-up offense because he doesn't overthink. Less time overthink, to think. Absolutely. Yeah, when he overthinks, he makes bad decisions and bad plays. I, th- I thought he – if you base it off the whole game – I don't think Mitch did good. I thought he did very good in the fourth quarter. That's about it. Well, to the defense, this was not the Bears' defense that I know. And I told you guys, I don't know which podcast it was, but Eddie Goldman is going to be a key loss to this team, and it showed today. The running game against an old fuck like Adrian Peterson looked horrendous. Losing Robert Quinn today didn't help either. But, guys, I have a question. Where the hell was Khalil Mack today? I didn't hear his name one time. I think he had I a couple saw, rushed attempts. He, 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 he 
played well all day. From what I can see, from what I could see on the field, the guy was constantly on top of uh, Stafford's lap. He's getting double teamed a lot and, and held. And I wish, I, I fucking wish they would watch Khalil Mack and his defensive line play as a referee. I know there's a lot of shit going on, but this guy gets fucking mugged almost every play. Like two or three you people not block him, and that was a backup too. That was a backup tackle. Yeah, he he got he gets held every game, but I'm still saying Khalil Mack would have a good game for a regular player, but Khalil Mack is a superstar, and he should have a better game than he did today. And Hicks had a sack, but other than that, I didn't see Hicks make that many great. I thought the D line did had a bad game today, and um, Jalen. I think Johnson, it looked rusty. Yeah, Jalen Johnson had some good plays. You know, he's a rookie. He's going to have to figure out. But there's some plays that he let go a little bit. But uh, at the end of the game, he made a big play, stepped up at the last throw in the end zone, batted it down. So good job for him. Kyle Fuller with a good pick. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think defensively the pass game on defense for the Bears wasn't as bad, but the run defense did not look that great. And um, I thought the receivers for the Bears were the bright spots today. I thought Jimmy Graham, Miller, and Robinson were the bright spots. And you know what? Montgomery had a great game, too. We need to give him the ball more. Um, and, the th- and, the th- and the thing that, uh, Joey, you, you hit it right in the head, the receivers had a big day. And whether, you, you know, you thought Mitch had a, a good game, a bad game, mediocre game, no matter what you want to say about Mitch, I think he had the opportunity to win the game today because the offensive line play was, was fucking fantastic all game. Yeah, Which line, yeah. I think we have to at least acknowledge the fact that having Juan Castillo, a brand-new offensive line coach, has at least put these guys in the position to win ball games. Uh, you know, I had heard a lot about, uh, you know, what was being taught beforehand uh, before Castillo got into the organization. And I guess technique and things um, that were being taught years prior to, to this current year uh, were maybe um, old news or not up to snuff with what the rest of the league was teaching. So I'm not giving these guys the excuses to be uh, as bad as they have been over the last four years, probably. Um, but this team and this offensive line looks like a better unit than it was last year. And the only difference, you know, you, you've, you put out Eiffelt in, into the guard position, a pro bowl guard, a fatty, which you made a fatty, a fatty, correct. Yeah. A pro bowl guard that, that has the experience and I think you put a new, uh, you know, a new offensive line coach. And I think that's probably, you know, <laughs> that's probably what made it so successful today. W- granted, the Detroit Lions defensive line maybe isn't, uh, you know, San Francisco. But we're in the ballpark now of being able to pocket pass because it doesn't, the, the, the pocket didn't collapse. All game he was able to throw, which I thought was a well. A step well, let me interrupt you there because, like, what it comes down to is play calling. Like, in my opinion, it's play calling. You know, you could talk about it, you can blame it on the players, but you know, when you run when you run the ball on first and second down, and then maybe even third down, third and short, like you're not giving your players a chance to do anything. You know, a second down is the best down to pass because you know, guess what they do on third down when you run the ball twice? Now you got a third and seven, third and six. What do you think the defense is going to do? They're going to back up. They're not going to load the box. So, you know, you blame it on Mitch or, you know, some of these missed throws. The guy's under duress and everything. He's got to throw into tighter windows now because, you know, the DVs are backed up. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Kevin. I agree with you. But uh, I think the play calling needs to get better. I'm not, it's not just Mitch when they struggle. It's, you know, the, I think Matt Nagy calls some shitty plays sometimes. 100%. I, I, I scratch my Big head post. a bit. And, 
And the offensive line, as Brian said, does look better. And I'm going to say Effetti is a big improvement from fucking Rashad Coward. I mean, that was a joke. There was, there was no downgrading in that position. What okay. I'm saying, that, that unit right now looks better than it did last year. And I yes. don't know what the difference is yet. We will see by week two. I'm sure we will see if this team uh, just had a, one good game against Detroit. This unit was able to handle a team that they were supposed to handle. But, you know, let's see what happens in week two. Let's see. I, I'm just ecstatic by the fact that we were able to throw the ball in the pocket as much as we, we were. I mean, Mitch is used to throwing off his fucking back 90% of the, the dropbacks that he has because of the offensive line uh, troubles that we've had over the last few years. Yeah, mo- most of the game, the Mitch, Mitch had a lot of time to throw. But, there, you know, there's a couple plays. I think the, there's one offensive lineman that had a particularly a couple bad plays and that's Charles Leno. I saw him laying down on the ground. Yeah. Yep. He's got to yep. figure it out. And he's the left tackle. It's one of the most, probably the most important position on the offensive line when you're right-handed quarterback. Yes. And, and I don't know um, if that was a mobility issue or not, but I saw the same yeah. thing you were. He was getting right. beat front side. He was getting he was. ran down the offensive line. Yeah. And, you know, a guy who's on the opposite. in front of him. A defensive end on the opposite side of the play should not be able to come in and make a tackle outside of the right tackle you know what i mean that guy should be have a body on him long enough for where you know we're not stretching out runs and losing two yards from a player on the opposite side of the field um but well, yeah, yeah Joey, just, even yeah, though I, even I, though they want i'm still i'm still frustrated just because you know if if they're getting because let's be honest like they didn't really win that game like three out of four quarters was all detroit and if you're getting your ass kicked by detroit the whole entire game you know, we, we don't really have an easy schedule this year. You know, there's oh. a lot of, there's a lot tougher teams than Detroit. And so it, 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 it's kind of worrisome because, you know, if you squeak away with a win like that, you know, you get beat for three quarters and then you win because somebody dropped a pass at the very end. You know, yeah. it's just, what do you think is going to happen when you start playing Tom Brady or some of these other teams? Right. I think me and Kevin could agree that the, the theme here is, is that you got to play four quarters of football. You can't just play one quarter. You have to be solid throughout the whole game, especially if you're playing a good team. We're right. lucky we play the Lions today. That's all I got to say. If we were playing a team like the Bucks or the Chiefs, God forbid, we would be slaughtered because the first three quarters were just not good. And, uh, yeah, me and Kevin was saying you can't coast. That, I agree with that 100%. I think that is the main thing, the main takeaway today, is that the Bears need to play four quarters, not just one. But for a team uh, that obviously underperformed – and a team that did not uh, play those, you know, all four quarters. It was a, uh, it was a nice thing to see them win week one. I think last year when we dropped the game to the Packers week one, it was kind of a morale, um, kind of a morale uh, deflator, if you will. I think it was something that uh, really gave us an idea what the season was going to be like. And I feel like week one is so important because it just builds that momentum, builds that confidence for week two. And if you can win the first three, four games of the season, you usually put yourself in a good position to make the playoffs. It's just statistically proven. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's just, it shouldn't be going that way. It should be, this should have been like an in and out guaranteed win. Like this is like the Sox playing Kansas city and Kansas city throws a wild pitch to lose a game. Like that's like what Detroit did. 
But I'm but I'm saying we gotta look at it in a positive light. The fact that they're one and zero as opposed to zero and one after this first game, while underperforming and underplaying and getting great uh, performances from your wide receiver wide receiver core, as well as good enough defense to get the job done against a, a quarterback who I think is one of the most underrated in the league, uh, mm-hmm. as well as as well as a real good receiving core out in Detroit. You know that's that's I'll I'll take week one. I'll take a win. Um, but we gotta move. We gotta move on from the Bears and the Lions, and we gotta talk fantasy football. Well, actually, can I can I bring up one question before we go on to fantasy? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I know that fans play a huge part into NFL simply because of the noise. And I know watching the game, I felt a little more into the game because you could hear all the players talking. You could hear everything going on. So Kevin, Joey, for you guys, do you think that that played a part in it in that fourth quarter with? you know, the hurry up offense, like Joey was talking about, that there wasn't a lot of noise to hear out people calling out plays and doing things like that. Because I feel like, you know, we've played baseball games, Brian, where sometimes the noise takes into account certain things. I know it happens in MLB games, but for football, it's such a big part as to try to figure out what the offense is doing on the defensive side. So do you, do you guys personally have like any, anything to go with that? Yeah, um, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a big thing. You know, without the crowd, you could definitely hear yourself more. You could call out the audibles as you go up to the line for a hurry up offense, and they could hear you better and stuff like that without the crowd noise. But when you're when you're a professional athlete in football, baseball, basketball, whatever it may be, no matter how many people are in the stands, you got to play your game and learn to tune that stuff out. I mean, you just you got to be professional no matter what. But I do agree with you that the no audience to the fourth quarter did it, it played, yeah. played a little part of it. Yeah. I definitely think it did because you know, during a two minute offense, your whole like 90% of it is communication. Cause if you don't have 11 guys, you know, with that fast of a pace, if you don't have 11 guys on the same page, like, it's just not going to work. You're going to throw a pick, you can get sacked. Something's bound to go wrong. So, I mean, I, I bet you it, it was a real game, but I bet you like in this situation, there's a little bit of an edge taken off because it feels more almost like, like an exhibition or like a scrimmage, you know, um, you don't really feel that kind of pressure. Like, yeah, the time's wearing down, but you don't really feel – because, like, when that crowd starts going, like, these stadiums, they're built straight up. Like, Soldier Field, the fans are literally on top of you. There's probably, like, 10 feet from the stands to the field, and then everything is just up. So it's really hard to uh, communicate when you're in that kind of situation. So I definitely think it played a factor. Absolutely. Um, but we, we have to move on to fantasy football. Um, so the boys, uh, we've all gotten together, uh, and added a few, uh, people from, uh, family, friends and friends themselves or family themselves. Uh, we've come together to make our own fantasy football league. I know we teased it in episode six. I want to say, uh, the league was created, the league was drafted for, and obviously week one, we have our matchups going as we speak. Um, we're just going to go around the room talk a little bit about, uh, some picks that we've made. And what we're excited about and uh, how we're doing in our week one matchups. Um, I, I guess I'll start just because I've been, I've been out of the fantasy football scene for at least, I would say, eight years. So this is my first year coming back to uh, fantasy football. And uh, I guess my two picks that I would be most excited about uh, were Josh Allen and uh, Tyreek Hill. Uh, I really wanted to pick up Josh Allen after what the Bills had done last year, and I, I'm a total believer in Bills Mafia again this year. I think the team has only gotten ba- uh, better. Um, 
I also uh, picked up Tyree Kill, um, who I think is going to have a gigantic season underneath Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid again, um, which I think is surprising that those are the two people I picked knowing that I got Christian McCaffrey in the first round with the first pick overall. Um, the sleeper pick that I felt like I had, uh, I think is Cam Newton after what we're seeing in week one. That may just be the steal of the draft. I mean, I got him almost, I want to say the ninth round or the 10th round. Um, he was a guy that was kind of sitting there and obviously none of us knew what to expect him coming to a new offense underneath Bill Belichick. Uh, I think that would be my, my sleeper pick. Uh, and my week one matchup right now, I, I've got Mark uh, who happens to be cousin Joey's brother. Um, right now I, I'm at a, a three point deficit, but uh, I still have uh, Robert Woods and Jerry Judy and uh, a couple other of my receivers still coming into a game and, we're going to see how it goes. I, I think it's going to be a really tight one. But um, as far as that, um, Kevin, fantasy football picks, man. Who are the two picks you're most excited about? Oh, man. I mean, I was pretty happy with my whole team overall except my quarterbacks. But um, I think my two big ones right now uh, are Julio Jones, obviously, and Alvin Kamara. I mean, those those were my first two picks, I'm pretty sure. Um and and they're giving me points right now. Alvin Kamara with two touchdowns at halftime. I mean, I really can't complain. Um, yeah, but the team I'm going against, I'm going against Nick. Um, he's just ruining me with my receivers. Just absolutely disgusting. Shout out Nick Williams on the uh, Dollar Dog Sundays podcast. I mean, he literally couldn't have Calvin Ridley play a better game. The guy had the game of his career. And I'm just really upset to be in this situation because <laughs> I'm putting up 145 points. And I still have two more players, and I just like can't catch up to him because he's just I don't know his team's ridiculous right now. Joey, your two picks. What are you most excited about on that fantasy football team of yours? Well, I always gotta go with my number one pick, Derrick Henry. He's gonna he's <laughs> a monster. Probably my favorite running back in the league. He's gonna be fantastic. I picked him in my other league as well. Um, and there's I think my receivers are pretty good. Um, but I, I'm gonna do a shout out to Chris Godwin. Um, right now it's halftime and, you know, he's, you know, not doing too much, but I think he'll come alive in the second half. Chris Godwin is a very good receiver, very good young receiver, was great last year, even with Evans in there. And now Evans has some injury issues, so Godwin might be their guy going forward. And I like to point out my sleeper pick. You guys could all quote me on this. This guy's got good receivers. When Sutton is healthy, he's going to come alive. Drew Locke is my sleeper pick. I think he's going to be a great quarterback this year. Drew Locke. A stacked, a stacked team, in my opinion, with the Broncos. Sutton, Judy, Hamler. You got Lindsey and Melvin Gordon in the backfield. Noah Fan at tight end. I mean, how, how can Drew Locke not do well? If he doesn't do well, he's worse than, worse than fucking Mitch Trubisky. Well, you know what? If they don't, <laughs> if they don't do well, if they don't do well this year, they're bound in a couple years because yeah. that's a lot of talent with a lot of young guys. <laughs> Dan, Dan. Right. You got to give us your two picks. What are you excited about? Well, I'm really excited about my quarterback situation. I got Russell Wilson and Aaron Rodgers today going off. They almost hit 700 yards, eight touchdowns combined. I think that's huge coming out of there. Uh, Michael Thomas was my first round pick. He's not looking too hot with the Saints right now. I have a very bad situation with Mike Evans going on since he was questionable to start the day off. He's playing right now, but no offense coming out from the Bucks. My sleeper pick is actually going to be Zach Moss with the Buffalo Bills. He's a their running back. He hasn't didn't play a lot today, but he had a 11 yards receiving with a, a reception touchdown, and that's better than Montgomery did today. So I'm really looking forward to see 
see him come out and play. Glennie, your two picks you're most excited about. Well, I, I don't know how I managed to do this, but at six, you guys let me draft Ezekiel Elliott. I mean, thank you. Thank you for the – I mean, it was a late birthday present, early birthday present. I don't know if you want to call it. But it's right in between or in between there. But, I mean, I, I, I was like, oh, very excited. Uh, my, another one that I was excited about was Austin Eckler, even though he's very underperforming right now through one half of football. I'm not going to hit the panic button just yet. Not yet. But uh, I have him in a few leagues. Uh, big on him this year. Great PPR guy. Uh, ended up getting him with the 27th pick. He was going top 15 in most uh, drafts. Uh, whether I did notice. Out. I did notice he was there. So I don't, I don't have, I don't, I wouldn't say I have many sleeper picks um, on my team as I did value picks. And I mean, Miles Sanders, I got uh, in the, with uh, my 22nd pick, I believe Uh, Duke Johnson, I took in the last round. And let me tell you, it's a very, very underrated is the kicking position and how I, with the third to last pick in the draft, you guys let me get Will Lutz for the, from New Orleans Saints who, Hey, they score a ton. Thank you. Dynamite. So, yeah, dynamite. I mean, I, I will take that. Kickers, hey, believe it or not, those uh, those guys really get the job done there. And I got uh, like little extra points, extra points there. Win uh, difference between wins and losses sometimes. So. I grabbed uh, I grabbed Robert Gold before <laughs> uh, you guys could too. I thought that was a pretty nice pickup uh, late. Um, well, yeah, Glennie, The reason why I didn't pick Elliot's because I had to decide between him and Henry, and I, you know, I think Henry's. I appreciate you though. I was I was completely <laughs> waiting for either a Michael Thomas or a Derrick Henry. I'm like, well, Derrick Henry's not my kind of style back. I like a guy that catches the ball. But I mean, I would have taken him. But hey, I, I appreciate it. I I love me some Zeke on my team. So, my opinion, the best back in the game behind CMC, who is a man that does it all. But uh, Zeke gonna have a huge year this year. Will be the number one running back in. Uh, fantasy this year at the end of the year. I hope he breaks his collarbone. <laughs> I have him no joke on three teams. Don't do that to me. <laughs> you know what? Uh, speaking of injuries, uh, Dan uh, wrote in the chat uh, that Kittle, George Kittle, had ran off the field with an ankle injury, knee injury. Do we have an update on that, Dan? Uh, he, they went to halftime. It was uh, the last two minutes of the, of the half. He went up for a ball, and uh, I, I don't know which defender got him, but uh, took out his knee and his ankle. He walked off the field under his own power, but he had his helmet off the last two minutes of the game of the, of the half, so I don't know what's going to go, go on. Brian, great Brian, news. Brian, great Brian, news for Brian. me. Uh, I have George Kittle at tight end. So that's, oh, let's go. Great news for me. I, no, um, I, I hope he gets better, but that's, that's at least good for uh, – it's not good for Brian this week. Uh, no, he's at 9.3 points, so I don't think that'll uh, do it for me this week. But <laughs> – me and Joey are going to have a barn burner in our game this week. Yeah, it's so projected like three points apart. Not anymore. Your, your projection is a lot more now. I see. That's what I like to hear. You got more people left than I do. Just oh, I, got, I, I still got Z coming up tonight. But we have to move on from fantasy football. Um, we've got a really exciting interview for you guys today. Uh, we're going to interview a big-time White Sox fan as well as a Chicago sports fan, a guy that's created uh, a lot of artwork based off of some big events that have happened in the South Side as well as the rest of the Chicago sports world. Never the Cubs. Uh, let's get right into it, huh, Dan? Give us that sound effect, baby. So today on Dollar Dog Sundays, we have the absolute pleasure 
in interviewing Mr. Tom Borowski, otherwise known as Tom Paints on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Tom, would you mind letting the listeners know who you are? Uh, just a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, so I think most people know me as Tom Paints, uh, paint White Sox stuff, some Bear stuff here and there, uh, depending on what type of mood this, the team puts me in. Uh, but yeah, I'm a region rat, grew up in Northwest Indiana, moved out to LA a long time ago and did the whole art school thing. And then uh, I work in animation. That's like my full-time gig. Uh, yes. So stay up late at night and painting sports stuff and and interacting with the crazy White Sox Twitter people. We we are definitely a part of those crazy White Sox fans on Twitter. So we've uh, I've been familiar with your work. Uh, I, I followed you on Twitter uh, for a minute now and actually had the opportunity to meet you uh, when you were selling prints at Sox Fest this year. I actually took a photo with you. I have to dig that up. And, oh, nice. Uh, okay, cool. <laughs> send yeah. it over your way. Um, but I actually saw you in line when I was uh, in line to meet Eloy Jimenez, and uh, I had to pick up a print. Um, and I ended up uh, uh, buying the Eloy print that you had, which I know is somewhere in this room. But uh, it's the one with him and <laughs> kind of Charlotte Knights uh, crossover between him in his Sunday's uniform and the Charlotte Knights piece, if you, uh, you're familiar with that one. Um, I, yeah, I remember that too, man. Saxfest was nuts. So was, yes. uh, I remember, yeah, I remember like somebody pulling me out of line. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was me. Um, but I, I'm just always blown away by your work and your ability to give your pieces character and to capture uh, who these um, amazing players, especially in 2020, really are. And I find it uh, just absolutely interesting. Um, I guess the first thing we want to ask you is like, what compelled you to start painting Chicago sports athletes? Oh man. I mean, I kind of just was like, I mean, I work nine to five painting for a, a job. So I'm like, as much as I, I enjoy that, it doesn't really feel like I'm doing anything for myself. And, right. uh, yeah, it was like, it was kind of like, I had my, my, uh, firstborn, my daughter and I, I was home from like paternity leave and I was watching White Sox stuff and I was just kind of like, I don't know, I kind of want to start painting again. I had a little time, and uh, yeah, I just kind of was like, I'm going to start painting something I actually like. Um, man, I like like doing like landscape stuff and everything, but I'm like, I like sports. So, uh, so yeah, I just started like painting the White Sox. I think the first painting I did was like Daniel Palka uh, when he did the yep. Hawk Off, and that uh, was kind of when the team was starting to get a little momentum. Where you're like, oh, this isn't the same like bums that they've been running out. Um, just some, some new guys, and it, it seemed like kind of the the narrative was starting to shift a little bit with them. So, uh, yeah, I just kind of jumped on that, and then I figured out Twitter, and uh, and it's just kind of snowballed into into what yes. it's become. Yeah, you've had you've had wild success, as we could see, uh, both on your Instagram pages and your Twitter pages, and obviously you've been able to create. Uh, you know, stuff for the Bears, stuff for the Bulls, the White Sox. Basically, I, I would assume your favorite teams in the city, knowing that I see that Bulls hat on your head today. Oh, um, yeah. But what does what the process look like when you're creating a piece like this? Where do you gather your inspiration? And, and I guess, where does the piece begin? Uh, so I'm pretty careful. Like, I don't want to steal anybody's photos. So it, it's kind of tricky. Like, I have a lot of respect. Like, first off, tons of respect for, like, all the photographers. Um and the White Sox photographers, I think, uh, they do such a good job. And there's been some, like, really iconic moments that they've captured. So 
Uh, I'm really careful like not to use those because I don't want to just like take what they did in the hard work and then, you know, steal it. Um, so I watch, I mean, I watch all the games pretty much. Uh, and then I just kind of scrub through footage and I find like, you know, something I like or I piece together different things. Uh, and then I'll draw like reference from some of the, the photos because um, a lot of times they're really crisp. Uh, so I'll look at like certain things that they do shoot and try and like interject it into the painting uh, to make it a little stronger. Um, but that's kind of where it comes from. I just look for fun moments that if I'm going to stay up till like two or three in the morning, uh, it's yeah. So I want to find something that's interesting to paint. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. This has been a, probably a really uh, busy year for you uh, as far as fun moments go with this team. Um, but how long does it tip? I know you were talking about staying up till 3 a.m. after uh, hopefully a White Sox winner. I, I don't think you would be uh, compelled to paint anything after we lost, I would imagine. But um, how long does it typically take you to create a piece? And specifically, I, I got to know, how long did it take you to paint Geo's no-no? Uh, I mean, typically it takes me a good, like, three to four hours. Um, I don't really time it too much anymore because I just kind of, like, mess around and, and uh, do stuff in between. Um, and usually procrastinate a bunch uh, to actually get it going. And then I have to talk myself into it to be like, okay, I'm tired, but I'm going to get this done. Um, and then once I start and everything, it's just kind of, I coast and I get in this like kind of cool, relaxed Zen like moment with it where I'm actually like pretty, pretty comfortable and happy and, uh, just kind of zone out. So sometimes I have no idea how long they take. Um, I think the geo one, like, I was really tired that night and I was like, oh, of course this guy's going to pitch a no hitter tonight after I just did like <laughs> a long day of meetings. So I was like, but I, I got to get this done. And I kind of wanted to be like one of the first people with a, an image out in the morning. Uh, so I think that one took me like maybe three or four hours. Um, yeah. And I think I took a nap in between for like half an hour and, and finished it up. So, so uh, what's been uh, your best seller as far as your uh, work has gone? Uh, I think it's got to be the Luis Robert um, or the uh, the Geo, uh, the Lucas Giolito no hitter one. Um, it's kind of funny because like as the team's like winning, you can just see kind of the sales spike and stuff. Uh, so it's it's kind of uh, I think the newer pieces are are selling a little bit more. All right, Tom, it's Dan. Um, I'm just curious to know from a fan perspective if you were ready for the offense we've seen this sem- or this season. Uh, like, was it, like, I don't think you could ever be ready if you're a White Sox fan for this type of offense. <laughs> like, I was, yeah, I was definitely ready. And it's like, all, everything kind of stacked up. Where I'm like, okay, I think they can actually pull something together this year. But, man, I've never seen anything like this before. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like a new frontier of, like, having comfortability and being like, oh, we could score eight runs this game. And that's not really a big deal. Yeah, of course. Um, and then another question. I know that you primarily do Chicago stuff, but is there any other pitcher or position, position player that you'd love to see play for the White Sox and be able to paint or draw them? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big Trevor Bauer fan. Uh, so probably, I don't know if he lines up when the White Sox are playing are playing uh, the Reds coming up. But uh, I think I'm definitely going to do a Bauer piece. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a ton of pitchers I'd yeah, I'd like to see anyone come over <laughs> pretty much. Uh, I don't know who's available, though, so I kind of just 
try not to look too far into it. Otherwise, I might just get uh, bummed out if they don't show up. Hey, Thomas, Joe. Um, so what made you become a Sox fan? I I honestly, like, I can't even pinpoint. I just kind of grew up, like, I was a, a region kid, so I grew up in, like, Whiting and Hammond. And uh, so I think Sox Park was just really close and accessible. And that's I grew up watching, like, Frank Thomas. Um, oh, yeah. That's kind of that was the player, you know, the whole like good guys wear black, uh, Amen. their like marketing campaign back then. It was just a cool team to watch, you know? So, um, uh, yeah, I just, I didn't really have any family that was into the Cubs and, and, uh, I think we just watched a lot of white Sox and it was close by. So we went to the games. And what was your favorite piece of work that you've done? Oh, uh, for the white Sox, I, you know, I kind of go back to like, I think it was that first Tim Anderson piece, um, that I did because it was kind of cool because he like retweeted. No, he didn't retweet it, but he liked it and stuff. Um, so that was like the first time where I was like, "Oh, this is kind of neat." Like people are actually responding to the, the artwork that I'm creating. Uh, and like I didn't go into it to like start to like sell stuff. I was just like, "I'm gonna put stuff on Twitter and just kind of do what I like." And uh, I mean, that's always still kind of been the goal. Um, but the sales definitely kind of helped here and there for sure. But uh, I think it was that Tim piece. Um, kind of painting the jerseys where I painted multiple jerseys, uh, something I want to go back to, to doing again. But yeah, it was kind of cool. Cause I think that was the first piece that like actually people kind of retweeted and it, it got people to start following me. And uh, of all time and current, who is your favorite Sox player? Oh man, all time favorite and current. Um, I, mean, I have to go with Frank Thomas. Like, yeah, Frank Thomas for sure. Uh, I don't think it's, it's even, this team might challenge, like, Luis Robert might turn into that player. But, I mean, if we're talking, like, right now, like, yeah, like, Frank Thomas will always be the top, um, I think, until some of these guys develop further. Because it's fun watching the new guys because I've actually seen them from, like, you know, since they were in A-ball um, following them. So I think there's more of a connection. Uh, hi, Tom. It's Kevin. Uh, I had a question, you know, just uh, as you said before, Tim Anderson – showed you some attention on your work. Has there ever been uh, a piece that you've done where, you know, some of these pro players have kind of reached out and asked you, like, hey, can you send it to me or I'll buy it off you? Or has there ever been a moment like that? Uh, no, I haven't. I, I did a piece for uh, uh, Jace Fry's wife. Um, she had me up for uh, a father's day gift for him. So that was cool. Uh, I haven't really seen too much from the players. Um, so I'm always kind of like, I don't know, maybe it's like a thing because I'm, you know, Technically, kind of making some cash off their image or something. So I don't really know how, what they think about it. But um, I just always wonder because, like, in some of those paintings, they capture like some pretty significant moments, like with home runs and things like that. So yeah, no, I haven't. You know, like it's been it's been kind of crickets. Um, and I've reached out to like the White Sox a few times too because I'm like, hey, mm -hmm. paint some stuff for you guys. It'd be you know, it'd be uh, you know, for some of the promos that they do, and I kind of haven't back from them either so <laughs> all right it's all good hey tom it's glenn um just uh north being a northwest indiana kid uh do you happen to be a notre dame fan uh growing up or like any kind of college football other than pro yeah i was a huge huge notre dame fan um like i always wanted to go to notre dame until i was like i don't think i'm smart enough to go to notre dame so i went to art school um but yeah, I love the Irish and, and uh, yeah, I've been to a couple of games, um, but it's, it's a team I'd like to, like, I kind of want to go back and, 
and uh, catch a game there. Amazing feeling. I love that stadium. It's like Rudy's dad said, it's the prettiest thing these eyes have ever seen. I was at the triple overtime game, uh, in the undefeated season against Stanford, just pissing down rain the whole time. And that would be a moment I will forever remember uh, being at Notre Dame Stadium, just the atmosphere around it. Uh, and uh, big fan of uh, a lot of the artwork that you put out. Um, really like your Giolito, your um, Jordan and Kobe uh, piece. I really, really like. Um, having uh, the, you know, touching on the uh, Lucas Giolito no-hitter, uh, big uh, – Big news from the north side today, Alec Mills threw a new no-hitter. Are we going to be seeing your first uh, piece of work, um, our uh, Cubs artwork, with uh, Alec Mills' uh, no-hitter uh, painting? Uh, no. Yeah, I've got, like, a strict, like, uh, uh, yeah, it's, so it's, it's a strict like an Cubs policy. Yeah, no, it's not happening. I figured like, it's just, I I've had people, re- like, if I was actually painting Cubs stuff, I probably could have retired by now. Because I'm pretty sure I could just paint like a young piece of paper and sell it for. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm like if I was a smart man, I'd paint cup stuff. But no, I just I can't I can't do it now. It's that that cubby blue color. I just. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it burns. No offense. No offense. Other room. <laughs> it's all right. I'm the only lone wolf over here in uh, Cubs Nation. We try to give the uh, best perspective of both sides of town on the yeah. Dollar Dog Sundays podcast, but. Um, yeah. No, that was a cool no hitter. I mean, yeah, all the respect to, to that guy. That's a tough, you know, that's tough to pitch a no hitter in the majors. So, um, yeah, I was kind of happy it wasn't like Darvish or Hendricks because then you'd never stop hearing about it. <laughs> Very, true. Very true. Darvish looking like a Cy Young candidate this year, though. Yeah. Um, Tom, uh, you know, we obviously know you on White Sox Twitter as well as uh, just all your uh, Chicago sports artwork. We've seen uh, you paint. Uh, but you got your start, obviously, in animation. That's your job. Um, when did you start playing around with animation, and what got you into that? And uh, what was the first thing you made to boost yourself into, you know, the animation field? Oh, man. I mean, I think it was just like, uh, I want to actually, like, make a living as an artist. So I was like, what can I do that's I can paint and actually get kind of paid to do it? So animation uh, – seemed like a, the best route to do that. So I went to, uh, I moved out to California. I went to a school in Pasadena that's like known for cranking out really good entertainment artists. Um, it's called the uh, Art Center, College of Design. And uh, so yeah, I went there and just kind of like when I graduated, I had a portfolio and you just kind of pass it out to the studios. And, and my focus was, uh, was painting um, and doing background painting and stuff. So. Uh, that's kind of just kind of sent it out and and then um, got some small jobs. I think I graduated like right when the market crashed, so like nobody was hiring, so it was just like kind of scrapping with little little gigs. And then I kind of got my first break doing um, it was a a project pitch for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which is actually coming out this year finally. Oh wow! Well, that was like ten years ago, but uh, so I was on like the very very early stages of that. Um, and then that got me into like stop motion and doing a bunch of other things. And yeah, I just kind of, I kind of bounce around early on finding what I, I like to do. So uh, and now that I have a family, I'm like, oh, I'm going to work at the big studios and do the union stuff and everything too. Absolutely. Uh, what show or shows uh, was your animation involved with? Uh, I, we've seen you uh, obviously have been involved in some pretty um, 
big companies such as, you know, Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, uh, Disney, um, where can we find some Tom Borowski um, background painting or animation? Uh, yeah, so like, I think, uh, so I worked at Nickelodeon, I worked on, um, I was a background painter for their Hey Arnold movie. Um, and that was, uh, before that, I worked on like shows for HBO called like Animals and um, a lot of other stuff. Uh, so Hey Arnold, I worked, uh, I did background painting for that. And then I went over to uh, Cartoon Network and did uh, Close Enough, which uh, I think that just aired on HBO Max. Um, and I worked on that like, that was three or four years ago too, it feels like two years ago, I'm not sure. Uh, I worked on Infinity Train at Cartoon Network, which is a really cool um, kind of special mini series. And then I, I've been at DreamWorks uh, working in CG, which is it's a little bit different because you don't actually see your work like on screen because it's everything gets passed down to modelers and, and built and stuff. But uh, it's, it's cool because I do a lot of the color design and the color scripts for the show that I'm working on right now. All right, Dan again here. Um, I just have, you know, like, one more question about you know your paintings is that if you could go back in time uh and relive any moment that you could paint you know what what would that moment be for you oh man uh i mean the white Sox world series um i think i was like 21 at the time so uh all my friends were at school and i was i was back in northwest indiana and i was just waiting to move uh out to california but i think i would go back then because as much as i like to paint like I've got scenes from that that I want to paint now. Uh, it just feels so like old and historic. Like, I don't know, to like relive it and then paint something that night. If I can like go back and post that on Twitter um, right after the Sox won the World Series, that'd be pretty awesome. So hopefully I'll get that chance this year. Yes, yes, we're, we're <laughs> definitely hoping for that, right? Yeah. 2020 World Series, you painting the celebration photo get picked up uh that'd be that'd be pretty amazing um yeah if they win a world series I'll, i'm gonna be painting that night i don't know how many <laughs> i'll be in but i'll be painting that night so absolutely um tom we at dollar dog sundays want to thank you for coming on the show and thank you for continuing to paint the moments of our 2020 white Sox. uh we wish you the best with all your work and we are excited to see what you're going to be creating next and i really hope you get that opportunity to paint that 2020 world series celebration hopefully against the cubs <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'd survive that, man. So I'm really, <laughs> I, don't I don't know if I can do that. Um, but, but yeah, it's it's been fun. I, mean, I think I'll get to paint. I'll get to paint some big moments in the playoffs, and I think uh, you know, in the next four or five years, I think we'll get we'll get one. So absolutely, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks, Tom. Well, thanks a lot, guys. So that was uh, the second official uh interview of dollar dog sundays but guys that was the first time we've had anybody uh of this stature uh in our in our podcasting booth uh to talk a little bit about his work uh tom borowski uh a class act a guy that uh <laughs> absolutely the nicest guy that we've talked to thus far um god man he really is passionate about his work is he not Oh yeah. He's, he seems to really love it. I mean, that's what anybody should do. You got to love what you do. And he seems, you know, very into it. He's been a Sox fan his whole life. It seems like. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, it's great when you see someone who loves what they do and you get to talk to them about their process and everything. Very interesting guy to talk to. Yeah. I'm definitely going to be looking to pick, uh, pick something up from him, especially these, I love these, uh, 
jersey ones he does like you know the we touched on the Eloy with the Knights one the Tim Anderson with the black and the and the Sunday uniforms is so clean I I really like his work I think it's awesome yeah that one's probably my favorite one that's yeah me. yeah I was going through the page too and I saw the Tim Anderson one the one that he was talking about that one's just sick like I, I was thinking about I was going through the page I was like man I would probably hang up any of these you know he, he really does some really cool stuff yeah, he's he's a really talented guy. It seems like he captures like every moment almost uh, uh, directly after the moment. And now to hear you know that he puts in that work uh, after a, you know a seven o'clock start, and this guy throws a no hitter. He's up till three in the morning, four in the morning, painting uh, Lucas Giolito. I mean, uh, not only is the guy passionate, but you can tell he's a gigantic fan. Is obviously probably hoping uh, that he can paint that 2020 World Series as bad as we want him to paint that oh, 2020 yeah. World Series. So. Um, it was a real honor to have him on here, and I hope we can have Tom on again uh, in the near future. Uh, but uh, we got to talk a little bit about the Blackhawks. Uh, Glennie, we got, we got Corey Crawford trying to re-up a deal here, um, try, trying to – you know, the Hawks give him this uh, extension and are, are willing to uh, give him uh, more money than I think the man – probably deserves it was more of a uh team friendly type signing uh is what we were looking for but i mean he still hasn't signed the paper so i I mean what are your thoughts on that i mean first off 3.5 is way too much for a one-year deal for Corey crawford right now don't get me wrong loved what he did during the playoffs but always the question gonna be is he gonna last a full season at 3.5 for one year he better last all season and we better be in the playoffs and uh, on our road to a Stanley cup. Um, I think that, you know, he could sit there and take 3 million anywhere else, but at 35 years old, he, is he really going to want to go somewhere else risking his last couple years, not performing as well? I don't think he's going to want to go anywhere else. I think he ends up taking the three, uh, 3.5, um, uh, mill deal. Um, I personally would love uh, for him to take a, you know, a hometown kind of deal, you know, kind of approve yourself kind of deal, maybe a 2.5 deal, uh, save up some uh, salary cap for uh, the Hawks because you know, damn well, uh, we're going to need it uh, uh, in years um, looking ahead. Um, typical Bowman though. I mean, just overpaying for a guy that just doesn't just, I don't want to say doesn't deserve it, but it's been too big of a, a, a contract eating for up too sure. much cap space for a guy who is a 35 year old tender, which don't get me wrong. The, the Hawks need a tender right now, you know, but yeah. take that 3.5, maybe go out and uh, free agency. I'm not sure who's available, but I mean, go get a younger uh, goalie, go sign a couple defensemen. You know, uh, if you're going to build for next year and going to win a cup, you know what, take Crawford, hopefully, you know what, he takes the deal, he gets it done, and uh, the Hawks will be in the Sandy Club final, uh, finals next year looking to take home the cup. I mean, I mean, this is a guy, and, and you know, he had an unbelievable postseason. Um, but, you know, as a guy that came into the, you know, this year and kind of underperformed during the regular season, I mean, the whole team – uh, didn't seem like, a, you know, a well-put-together team from the get-go, but it found its way, whether it was the pandemic, whatever it may be, and they, you know, they end up taking the Oilers, who are not an easy uh, team to uh, take in a series. And Crawford plays, you know, immaculately better. Um, it's not that I don't I, – I don't think that he can't be that guy consistently. I just wonder – if you're going to get that out of him for 2.5 or 3.5 million. Um, 
I want him to be around just because I think it, I think it's a good uh, team signing. I think it's a good morale signing. Uh, but as far as performance goes, you kind of get what you get out of him. Uh, I think he would be very short-sighted if he doesn't sign this contract. I don't know many people that are looking for the 35-year-old goaltender uh, who, who, you know, underperforms in the regular season and, and turn it on in the postseason. Uh, that experience is, is definitely something that I'm sure teams would pay for, but I can't see anybody, uh, you know, overpaying the deal that we're giving him at this moment. Um, but we'll move on from there too. Uh, the Hawks, uh, they've got some time to figure themselves out here and, and to figure out the uh, goaltender situation. Um, but we got to get to the final segment of the day, as always the day in the history of sports, uh, on September 13th in 19, on in 1999, the Denver Broncos retired John Elway's Jersey, number seven, good old number seven in Denver. Um, this is a guy who, who has you know, transcended the, the quarterback position, a guy that absolutely had, uh, had an immaculate career underneath the Denver Broncos organization and uh, was able to win uh, uh, multiple Super Bowls and uh, do his thing. Kevin, I know you were a John Elway guy, a guy that uh, always looked at these guys, the all-time greats, uh, for your own, uh, for your own uh, play, to model your own play off of. Definitely. Uh, a bunch of quarterback coaches, you know, if they – you know, ever compare you to anybody they ever ask you to mimic someone would be guys like John Elway. You know, he's a great uh, model for what a, qu- a great quarterback is. I mean, when, you know, you look at top 10 quarterbacks, he's easily probably like top three for me. Uh, he's just obviously one of the greats. He, he's just such a great pocket passer. You know, he's got probably one of the stronger arms that there, that there has been. Um, like just, just so, such a great player. And I, now he's showing in the office too. He's got, he's got Drew Locke now there. He's a nine-time Pro Bowler, a two-time Super Bowl champ, and obviously an MVP award winner. Uh, Elway, you know, stands alone as one of these guys that is an absolute winner, a competitive force, and a guy that uh, dominated the league for his time uh, as a quarterback. Um, Dan, you know, what do you think? I'm just looking at, like, the – I just pulled up his stats really quick while we're talking about him. But I, I think one of the craziest things is that uh, from – 83 to 98, again, a long, illustrious career. He had long. 31 comebacks and 40 game-winning drives. I mean, we talk about who he brought into play quarterback before in Peyton Manning, which was a great guy for that. So I think that, you know, Elway, of course, is going to be somebody we talk about in football for a long period of time as he's a prolific member of obviously the Denver Broncos, but obviously, too, for NFL. I think he's a great guy. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> Joey? Yeah, the guy is a two-time Super Bowl champion, um, most valuable player in 1987, I believe. Um, you know, he's a great player, one of the best quarterbacks that I think ever played the game, uh, 300 uh, touchdowns in his career, over 50,000 passing yards. And he also won a Super Bowl as a GM, so he knows his shit. He knows football, man. I mean, he's, he's always been a smart player, and he's a smart guy. Um, when he brought Peyton Manning in, I was just thinking, I'm like, dude, that's an L.A. move because I see some similarities between L.A. and Manning sometimes, the way they call a game from the line and everything. So, uh, yeah, Elway's a legend. You know, he's a great, great player. I think he's a pretty good GM as well. Absolutely. I mean, guys said it all. I mean, exactly. Let's say enough. Uh, also inducted in uh, 2000 to the College Football Hall of Fame with his uh, four years at Stanford, who he broke 
between uh, records of passing and uh, co be uh, completions and touchdowns. Um, I mean, as a GM, I mean, he's uh, had a Super Bowl win already. He's been there My for Lord. all three, been there for all three uh, of the Super Bowls that the Broncos have taken home, two being a player, one being a, a GM, and just unbelievable. Not only is, uh, was he a first ballot Hall of Famer in uh, 2004, but uh, as a player, but look at, to him in the future as a G, uh, Hall of Fame for uh, GM. I mean, the guy is unbelievable building a offense around that defense, even though they're losing out on Von Miller this year. But I mean, guys all time, um, accolades say enough and a uh, great player to watch. I wish I was old enough to uh, be able to re uh, watch it and realize that greatness. And such. That would have been such a fun uh, thing to uh, witness. Just yes. a good football mind. He's got a great football mind. So great football mind. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Boys, we got through episode eight. How are we feeling? This is the eighth great. edition yeah. of Dollar Dog Sundays. Great I interview. Stop being on hungover on for these. <laughs> <laughs> we had a great interview. Great talking points. We're just excited to have you guys along for the ride. We want to thank you here at Tailgater Sports and Dollar Dog Sundays for being a listener day in, day out. Make sure you drop the uh, drop a subscribe button. Drop a comment. Let us know what we're doing right. Let us do what we're doing or let us know what we're doing wrong. We can make this thing work for everybody. We're excited to keep producing content for you guys. Another day, another Dollar Dog Sunday.